Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode of the podcast, we dive into the albums of the best effing band in the world with author Sean Hand, the man behind the book Pop Art Poems, The Music of the Jam. We kick off with the lead up to In the City and take a journey through to The Gift, hearing stories of discovery from Sean along the way. So let's get into it. Sean Hand, thanks for joining me. Okay, no, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to chatting about this. So pop art poems, the, the music of the jam, your brilliant book uh, that gives a really different and fresh perspective the, of this this band that we love. So we're going to dig into this because it, it goes through the evolution of the band song by song, starting from stuff that pre in the city, right through to that moment where we, we lost them forever, beat surrender and, and the goodbye from the band. First of all, I have to understand um, when this love of the jam kicked in for you, what was it? I think it developed when I was really young. I I was into the clash when I was about seven through hearing a tape that my mum had. And so I got into listening to that on my little kind of bright red Walkman, you know. Then I remember my mum saying one day, she's like, oh, well, if you like the clash, you'll like the jam. And lo and behold, that Christmas, um, so this will be about 91, I got the greatest hits album that came out that year, the one with the yeah. cover, really got into that. Then my dad had all the original 45s. He bought them over, so I had them. It came very young. I, d- I don't know what it was about them, really. It's been that long and they're that ingrained. I, I can't. They've just always been there, really. So how old were you then? Uh, I would have been seven. seven wow, right. Like seven years old, discovering the music of the jam. I love it. Yeah, yeah. although it was the early 90s. So I missed, obviously I missed. I was born 84. Yeah, I think you're the best thing was in the top 10. The week I was born. What was it about that music that connected with you? So, it's, you know, oh. why did it have such a big impact? I don't know if you can define why when you know you're seven years old or eight years old. 
I mean, I keep finding new things in it or new angles to come at it from or something or appreciate it in a different way. So there is a lot of depth to it. You might not, not say it sounds shallow, but you might not appreciate at first how much stuff is going on in there in terms of lyrics. And, you know, as I got into playing music uh, myself and understanding about how, you know, music works and arrangements work, how intricate a lot of the stuff is mm. for all its raw overall power. When you look at it, there's a lot, you know, a lot going on in yeah. Ahead of putting this together and, and doing you know, research with the book and, and, and looking into the songs and stuff, I realized that actually the jam in terms of studio albums and singles is actually less than four hours of output. Is it? I, wow. <laughs> which is, I'm not talking to it. yeah, I, I think that's I, right. I, yeah. Cause there's six, so there's six LPs, which are all about a half yeah. hour long. And then you've got obviously the, you know, the singles that, that came outside of that pretty much. Less oh. than four, and then you think the legacy that these guys have left yeah. for four hours God. of material is incredible. God knows how many times I've listened to that four hours. I've stretched <laughs> that out into thousands. I'd never thought to thought of it in um, like chronological, in those kind of terms. You know, yeah, it's it's um, it's yeah. crazy. And when was it that you decided actually what I want to do is is write a book about the jam? How did that come about? The idea was always floating around in my head somewhere from a very young age. Conscious start to it came in just after Christmas 2011. And I'd just been, I got sacked from a job, or let go from a job that I've been working on the night before Christmas Eve with 24 hours notice. So that was a fun Christmas. A couple of days later, I was, you know, after boxing day, I was sat in bed with nothing to do, was having a, you know, just sort of drifting around on Google, ended up finding some old jam scans from Melody Maker or some NME that I'd never seen before. I thought, well, that would be a good time to start a book and then worked on and off on it for three or four years. Not every day, but there'd be, you know, sort of a month where I do loads and then do nothing for eight months. You know, It's the only book on the jam that where you know, every single track is featured and you go into detail. So we, we cover everything from, you know, right from, like I say before, in the city, but all the B-sides, all the songs, it's basically the, everything they recorded that you could dig up mm-hmm. research on. So, so where do you start with that? How do you start digging into finding that information? Um, this is where I think subconsciously I was planning the book for a long time. So I remember, do you remember there was a book that came out called Sounds from the Street, I think it was called, Graham Wilmot, I think it came out around yes. 2003. I must have had, whatever year that came out, around then. So I would have been about 19. And I must have had the idea by, by then because I remember being gutted when I saw the book that some, uh, someone else had done it, you know. So I must have been just stockpiling information for years. Obviously, once you've got, you know, the box set, got extras and a few bootlegs, you've got the bulk of the material. And then as I was writing it, the deluxe editions came out, didn't they? But in terms of finding out about them, uh, I don't know. A lot of it just obsessively reading every interview, every book you can find. Yeah, just picking up little bits here and there. And then just as I, like I say, as I learn about music, analyzing a bit, um, okay, the bass line does this, where the guitar does this, you know, and that they work off each other in such and such a way. So I wanted to look at it in that way, but in a way that maybe people who weren't musicians could understand as well then if you are into that thing, you can get something from it as well. One of the things I really liked was that um, obviously you're a massive fan of the jam and 
they mean everything to you. But at the same time, you're looking at this and, and some of the stuff you're going, this is not their best material. You're at least coming in from the angle of not everything they did was perfect, which I liked. And some yeah. of the stuff you're kind of oh, even a little critical of, which I think is good to, to mm. kind of look through because the thing that really tracks through is that evolution of this band and, and where they started from to where they ended up is a remarkable journey. Oh, yeah. I mean, by anyone's stretch, and we're talking five years, five, six years. So imagine in the city had come out around the time of the Brexit referendum and the gift was out now. Do you know what I mean? That's like, <laughs> that's essentially the time period that they did all that in. Yeah, it's incredible. Most yeah. bands would put out three albums out now that sound broadly similar yeah that musical journey yeah, is incredible that they go on and mm-hmm. um, I was watching something with Noel Gallagher the other day and he was talking about the fact that somebody pointed out to him that Nebworth only came 18 months after he last signed on to the doll <laughs> which is oh, yeah. I mean, equally like an incredible journey um, yeah. let's dig into some of these songs and, and what they mean to you so we're obviously going to start yeah. off within the city but I, I will say that but actually yeah. the book starts off a little earlier than that right we start off with um, Steve Brooks and and Paul Weller and Dave Waller on rhythm guitar and back in 1973 we start with Blueberry Rock and yeah. Some Kind of Loving and you know song, songs that maybe jam fans won't know is the, you know, the jam that we, mm. we know and love because you know, Bruce isn't there for a start but you've dug right back into you know, the evolution of how we got to In The City which I think is nice Well yeah because I wanted to make it as complete as possible I mean a lot of those songs are really interesting and I was really interested when I read Steve Brooks's book Again, just finding out little bits of information. There was like little scrawled set lists in there and lists of songs that they covered or were trying to cover. And yeah, you've got to get from that to in the city. And it's five years. It's half half the time the jam were operating. Half of it was pre Polydor. And some of the songs I'd heard on bootlegs, some and some turned up on YouTube around the time I was writing it. So you know, these songs that you would think were only. Four copies were locked in a vault and cost you thousands of pounds. You can just log on to YouTube and there. Making my way back home is on YouTube, I think. Some kind of loving is as well. I think Blueberry Rock, I did hear that at the exhibition 2016. So again, I was like listening to it on headphones. I was like desperately trying to remember like what it sounded like. So I was like, right, take note of this stuff. Talking to Rick Buckley, he was talking about the, you know, when he first joined the band. And I think Steve Brooks kind of said to him, here's, you know, here's a load of Chuck Berry LPs, go and learn these. And yeah. that's what they were starting off doing all these covers and that. Yeah, and it's. It is interesting that how far away, even at that point, they are from what's going on in the contemporary charts. I can't speak to it too much because I wasn't, I was, you know, minus 12. Even, you know, you think glam rock and, you know, prog and stuff. And there they are, you know, sound, they sound like the Everly Brothers and Beatles and referencing Chuck Berry and stuff. So you started off with Greatest Hits, which is a, obviously a perfect introduction. And actually was my, mm. my, same, my same introduction to the jam. Um, okay. But, but when we go through this, let's talk about my albums. In the City, 1977, 12 tracks, 32 minutes. Art School, I've Changed My Address, Slow Down, which was a cover. I Got By In Time, Away From The Numbers, The Batman Theme, uh, In The City, Sounds From The Street, Non-Stop Dancing, Time For Truth, Taking My Love, Bricks And Mortar. Bang, we're done. We're, we're in and yeah. we're out, 32 minutes. There's, there was a lovely quote from um, Phil McNeil at The Enemy who said, Paul Weller's songwriting captures that entire teen frustration vibe with the melodic grace and dynamic aplomb of early kinks and who. What was when you started digging into the research of In The City what did you find and what is it about that album that still stands up for you? Um, I liked it I remember being really into it when I was a teenager it's still got something that speaks to you know young frustration and energy and anger there what I found quite interesting looking in the songs that were written for it and the ones that didn't make it and stuff is a lot of it is as much as you know it's 
gives out, you know, the Who and Pete Townsend. There's a really big Dr. Feelgood R&B influence in there because a lot of the songs in there were written as early as 75, something like that. They were just sped up for recording. Like if you hear some of the early demos, things like I Got Bite and Time sound completely different. Yeah, I don't know. Like I say, it's a um, great debut album, just in and out. You know, there are already multiple influences at play, you know, although they are the ones that crop up a lot through a jam's career, things like, you know, The Who, uh, Motown, Beatles, Dr. Feelgood. But of, of a little Nick's, like I was always fascinated by how the end of Sounds from the Street is nicked from um, we got to get out of this place by the animals. There's lot little references. It's R&B, basically, isn't it? To a degree, you couldn't really call it punk rock, I don't think. Too sharp. Or two. There's too many other influences that play for that. I think. The thing that's remarkable for me is six months later, there's another album. So the modern mm. world, which is is often talked about as a, a, a flop, and you know, would the jam have survived? And actually, when I look at it, it went silver in the UK. It sold more copies than in the city. But again, twelve songs, thirty-one minutes. Mm. The modern world, London traffic, standards, life from a window, the combine. Don't tell them you're sane. So we get Bruce Foxton writing songs here as well, mm. um, which we'll come on to in a sec. Um, in the street today, London girl, I need you for someone. Here comes the weekend tonight at noon. Bang in the midnight hour we're done the Wilson Pickett cover we're in we're out 31 minutes again <laughs> I mean I think that's a brilliant album and there's a real mixed feeling in the jam community but we have to have that album to get to all mod cons because you can still hear that evolution to me from the band oh totally I think I say in the book it's almost like um, it's almost like a first draft of all mod cons in a way because you get lines and themes in the combine that pop up in in the crowd. I think the, the line in the crowd is just in the combine. I don't think it suffers so much in terms of songwriting as production and you can tell it's rushed. Some of it feels quite first takey. When you listen to um, the live versions from later on, from that Reading uni gig on Fire and Skill and bootlegged everywhere, um, things like Here Comes the Weekend and In the Street Today sound a lot better because they've been they've been playing them for you know, 18 months by that point. So they're played in their tight. And stuff. I really like it as well. You know, I can always listen to it. Um, but I still, you know, I can't quite bring myself to like, you know, said London traffic. That really isn't, you know, with the best will in the world, that's not one of the better songs. Uh, <laughs> but then it's that thing where I've listened to them that many times that it's, I don't really have, I almost don't have an opinion on it. Do you know what I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just there. It's just in the bloodstream. I Need You's great. Night at Noon, Live From a Window. I always, I always love the combine as well. So I got it on um, clear vinyl the other day, which okay. was which is a new thing. It's not Polydor, it's, and I can't remember who it is. But standards is spelt mm. with, is spelt with a T, as in standards. Standards. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, really? Come on now. <laughs> yeah, I don't really go in for. Um, I probably would if I had the money. Over the years, I've bought less and less of the reissues, unless there's something new I'm going to get from it. Um, so I've just. Fortunate to have original copies of all the albums, although they're very battered from being taken out and played. But that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah it's. Um, I think that one, the artwork is really striking. Whatever you think of the music on the front and the back, and the drawings inside. And um, before now, I've gone out with a jumper with arrows, you know, gaffer taped onto my top and stuff. Like you say, you can't have all my cons without that. You know. Let's get into all my cons because there's talk of this missing third album mm. and, and this rejected album, if you like, by Polydor. Paul has to go away and rework it and that then mm. becomes all my cons. But that's not quite true from, from your research either, is it? And talking to, to, I remember talking to Dennis Monday on the podcast and again, he was kind of, well, no, not really. I mean, the songs mm. weren't good enough and Paul was sent away, but it's not like there's a bin of, um, of you know, the modern world's part two going into yeah. all my cons somewhere. It's like, no, um, no, I think I um, I was quite surprised when I 
looked into it as much as I can, you know, with no insider knowledge and no insider connections, just going by what I've read, how many of those songs were are just all my cons, you know, early versions that just got rearranged. All got used like A Bomb Water Street was gonna be was part of that. The missing album, I think it amounts to about three or four songs, doesn't it? Where the titles are known as I want to paint on Sunday morning. Um, oh, there was one called She's Got Everything as well, which apparently has been bootlegged, but I've never been able to find it, which was recorded for News of the World. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating area again. But from what I get is because there's this whole thing that, you know, Weller wasn't writing songs um, and he dried up and Bruce Rydell songs, but seems like Weller was writing songs. It's just he wasn't writing particularly good ones. Or if he was, he just couldn't focus it enough until whoever it was said, no, you've got to, you know, this is shit, go away and rethink it. And you got to kick up the ass. Whether those things will ever, ever surface, I don't know. It's, again, a, a really quick turnaround. And, and you think with a band, you, you know, when you get to your debut album, the debut album is usually the songs that you've been playing live for a few years. And like you say, you've, you know, you've worked those in, they then sound great. Second album is always difficult. But the, the speed at which then the third album comes around, it's like, yeah, we need another one. Come on, come on, come on. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's going to be a bit where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm a bit stuck on ideas here. And, and um, particularly because yeah. they were on tour so much as well. It's like when they're finding the time. But hey, look, 12 songs. We're a little longer. This is 37 minutes. And there are some classics. I mean, all mod cons is a great way to open any album. To be someone, didn't we have a nice time, is brilliant. Uh, Mr. Clean, David Watts, the um, Kinks cover. But then the not listed English Rose. And I love this idea that somebody can be listening to an album and suddenly this pops up and you're like, hold on, this isn't in the lyric sheet. This isn't listed. What the heck's this? <laughs> and, and that is, I mean, still one of the all-time classics one of my favorites of the jam and and from weller all the way through english rose is just a fabulous song in the crowd billy hunt it's too bad fly the place i love a bomb in wardour street you mentioned and then we finish with down in the tube station at midnight bang what a way to finish any lp um there's some great songs on that aren't there oh yeah but that's their first classic isn't it and a lot of people i think through the facebook page i set up to promote the book Last year, some point, I did a tournament, you know, sort of what's everyone's favourite weather album. I had like a knockout tournament. I mean, that finished high. It actually, didn't actually win, which surprised me, but um, still number one in a lot of people's art. They can see why, just because it's, I mean, it's scarily good when you consider, well, it was what, I think he turned 20 while they were writing it, while he was recording it, something like that. And yeah, English Rose Great. I love, um, I love the place I love. And it's mm. too bad. All of it's great. It's one of those albums, again, it's sort of, it's weird to stop and think about it because you just, no, you know, I could stick it on and just like, stick it on backwards and probably sing along, you know. <laughs> and I'd get to hear the guitar and in the crowd forwards as well. I? I did realise one thing I found when I was researching it was the night, the B-side of Tube Station, that was nearly on it. That would have been like, you know, the, the track that everyone skips and no one talks about. <laughs> There's no filler on that at all, is there? It's, um... No, it would be interesting to hear because they were going to have excerpts of conversation between the tunes, weren't they? They went and recorded. I don't know if it was them chatting to some mods or... Just they were just recording some mods talking amongst themselves, but they were going to have that interspersed between the tracks, which would have been interesting. But again, I don't know if it might have thrown it off balance because it's it's very coherent. It's got that lovely ebb and flow of an album, which I always think, and you don't really get so much these days with the world that we live in of MP3 and the drip True. feeding of tracks. Um, and actually, I think Fat Pop is is very much like this, where you know it needs to be experienced as an album to me. Those kind yeah. of, those kind of things, and um, and all more cons, I think, is definitely like that as well. It's like you know, you, it takes you really. Really does take you on a journey from all mod cons right through to tube station i think yeah which is the mark of a great album if you know there are when you i think when you really think about you know even albums that you absolutely adore there's always going to be a track where you you know 
you might just skip or you think, well, that's not as good as the others. All my cons is one album, but it's just solid all the way through it. Very hard to do. And it, like you say, timing, it's like that came out, what, a year after This Is The Modern World and they'd done a single and scrapped an album in between So and gone on tour at least twice. I think my favourite album is the next one, Setting Suns. And I, and I, like all of us, I'm sure we kind of change our mind regularly, but the one, you know, if I'm at the end of this chat, this will be the one I put on. So again, we're okay. really punchy. We're, we're 10 songs this time, we're 32 minutes. But songs like Girl on the Phone, Thick as Thieves, Private Hell, Little Boy Soldiers, Wasteland, and this idea initially of um, it, it kind of, you know, starting off as a concept album and then that kind of getting binned off a little bit but um, I'll yeah. continue to set this actually because we have a, we do have a Bruce Fox and classic Smithers Jones that is a mm. great song Saturday's Kids The Eaton Rifles and then the cover of Heatwave um, and we'll talk about Bruce as well on this because you know, as you go through you you talk about Bruce Fox's songwriting and the power of some of his songs And but this one really stacks up doesn't it? Yeah I mean I'm, I prefer the B-side version itself um, the band version um, but yeah Saint Sons is I really when I was writing it, writing, not writing Saint Sons, obviously, writing the book, uh, <laughs> that I think if Weller had seen the concept album thing through and perhaps they hadn't rushed to meet the deadline, then I think that I think it would have topped all my cons and it would be how good it would have been is almost unthinkable. Um, so if you look at the songs that are part of the concept, you know, things like Wasteland, which is one of my favourite um, jam songs, definitely my top five, Burning Sky, Little Boy Soldiers, Sticker Steve's. If you imagine a whole lot and eating rifles if you imagine a whole album of that standard of lyricism quality and playing and arrangements then you've I mean that would blow all my comes out of the water but such was the industry I think as well because it was they were still in that mode of you know the Beatles were expected to release two albums and four non-album singles every year because this is only 10 years after Abbey Road you know I mean when you think about it I guess as we get further away in time how close the, the late 60s and the late 70s are is becomes apparent you know sometimes it can seem like you know oh well it was the 60s and then 100 years later punk happened and it, it you know it didn't there was you know it was what seven years between you know the end of the 60s and anarchy in the uk so. but what i was saying is the industry was still in that mode where right, we want an album every christmas and we want three or four singles and got to tour and stuff so i can see why it might have been oh well got to get this finished you know just you know anything will do but then now, even when the Russians finish an album, you're coming up with stuff like Private Hell. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, Chucking that in at the last minute is, is remarkable. Yeah, you're right about the, the 60s and 70s things are really interesting from um, because and that distance in, in time from Abbey Road to, to Setting Suns, because actually that's the same as 22 Dreams to True Meanings. I mean, that's no, yeah, you're right. It's no, no time at all, is it? And, and the same as Wake Up the Nation through to On Sunset. It's the same time period. Yeah. Ten, ten years, bam. Can you say really that music has evolved? I mean, I don't think anyone would argue, obviously music's changed, but I don't think anyone would argue that music has changed at that kind of pace. But that's just the period of time it was set in, I guess. But um, yes, Satan Sons is, so yeah, I don't think it's as coherent as all my cons for me, but when it's, it's sort of, it's highs are higher and it's lows are lower. You know what I mean? Um, even though there isn't a bad song on there. Although I tend to sort of skip Heatwave, maybe. I'll give you that. Um, also has their first top 10 hit, Eastern Rifles, which was such an important song for them. You know, it was the one where they were suddenly getting daytime airplay on, you know, on, on breakfast airplay on Radio 1. They come out of John Peel. Yeah, they're, they're mainstream. That was one of my first favourites, if I remember rightly. And again, it's that thing where, well, it was 21 when he wrote that, you know, and he came out with them lyrics, which is um, scary. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that live with the Stereophonics. I think mm. played it with with Weller. Okay. Kelly from the Stereophonics played it with mm. him. And I don't know that I've seen him do it 
Any other time? I saw him 2009 and he did it. Saw him at Cannot Chase, sort of in between 22 Dreams and Wake Up the Nation. That was brilliant. It was a, it's a, such a powerful song, isn't it? Yeah. Some of the live footage of Jam doing it is some of the best footage of them. You know, the, the thing where they're on something else, which in the Joy Division performance in itself is a classic one, but um, where they're doing Eaton Rifles, it's just incredible. And there's mm. footage as well. A film called, it was called something else when it first came out, but it's on DVD as Punk in England, which came out in 1980, made by this German guy whose name escapes me. Footage of them playing Eaton Rifles, and it's, I found out eventually it was filmed at Brighton in late 79 on the Setting Suns tour, because it's the same gig that ends up, that is on the deluxe, or the super deluxe Setting Suns. There's only a small clip, but man is just off on one. He's like just like throwing the mic around and yelling rifles down the phone. Then he, <laughs> the and then he throws the microphone, he's slashing his guitar, and it's just incredible, intense. Move on to 1980, and and this album couldn't sound less like it lived in the 80s than you know if you think about that decade, really. Mm, the, only, the only jam album to be co-produced by the band themselves, sound effects, 11 songs, 35 minutes, and Pretty Green is right up there for me as one of my favourite jam songs. Huh. Brilliant. What a way to start an album. Uh, Monday, but I'm different now. Set the House Ablaze. Start is another great song. That's entertainment. Still gets played every week on radio stations in the UK. Dreamtime, Man in the Corner Shop, Music for the Last Couple, Boy About Town and Scrape Away. Another great one. So what, what are your views on this one and what did you find out? This one was always my favourite growing up. I've come to the conclusion that I just, I, I don't think I've got a favourite overall, but this one was always the one for me. Personally, I'm, I'm by, I think some people would say, oh, Music for the Last Couple isn't that good or something, but um, I'm by, I love everything on it, particularly Monday is one of my all-time favourites, and I scrape away as well. Interested to find out at one point, I think it was going to be called Open Open Doors at one point. I think they told a fanzine that was what it was going to be called. And this was the one, didn't they suggest Godly and Cream write some songs for them because he was struggling to finish it? I saw Paul had mentioned that on something recently where I think he'd phrased it as we was it was suggested that we cover 10cc. And that was how he'd phrased it in the interview. It might have been in Mojo magazine or, or something else mm. recently, but obviously that wasn't the thing. It was actually, you know, could Godly and Cream write for the jam, wasn't it? Yeah, which, I mean, when you, you know, if you think at the time they were, you know, getting quite sort of post-punk and angular, that's such a bizarre <laughs> idea. But intriguing nonetheless. Famous thing about it is how different it sounds to Setting Suns, you know. Quite anti commercial in a way, you know, because if they just made their name with going underground and eating rifles, having these big, you know, guitar sounds, and then suddenly they strip all that way, and it's, you know, there's things that are just focused on the bass and the drums, and something like Scrape Away, that when you listen to the drum patterns, really quite unusual. This one and Setting Suns, Rick Buckler's drumming is amazing on them. When you've listened to something a thousand times and you're not bored of it, that's, to me, that's what signifies there's a lot of depth to the music and there's a lot going on. And I think a lot of it on Setting Suns and Sound Effects is in how amazing the drumming is. Even if you're not a drummer, just the fact that there's so much going on, it's going to keep you coming back to it. You know? There's always something new to discover in there. You're like, oh, I never heard that little bit before. And the bass as well. And obviously the guitar and the singing, the lyrics are really good. I've always been fascinated by the talking bit in Set the House of Blaze that you can't quite hear you know, at the end, because on the lyric sheet, only half of it's printed. But I found some software recently that supposedly separates songs out. So you put a song in and it'll split into four, it'll split into the drums, the guitar, and supposedly hear everything individually, um, which works to an extent. But even, I was really excited. I was like, finally, I can find out what he's talking about. And it's still just, it's all too buried. Scrape Away is the one that's got the French through that loud halo thing at the end, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's um, a fan, isn't it? Because um, I always thought on the lyric sheet it says um, something like French by Laurent. I thought he was some like old French poet. You know what I mean? And it turns out he was a French fan called Laurent who'd gone to the studio as a fan and was in the studio while they were doing Scrape Away. Well, it goes to him, well, how do you say this in French? And he says, oh, you say it like this. He goes, oh, you recorded then. And so that's, yeah, it's that French guy. So that's one of the more um, advanced pieces of French I know. <laughs> I mean, two other things to talk about that I really like about the book as well is, so it's all the little nuggets of like where they recorded things. And the other thing that comes through is, how long things lived in a set list. And quite often, some of the stuff wasn't there for long. Boom, once or done, it's out. Because they, mm. they're just moving through songs so quickly. I've got a credit. There's a Smith's book, which I read years ago, called Songs That Saved Your Life, which is a similar thing to Song by Song. If you're into the Smiths and you've not read that, it's really worth a read. And it does a similar thing. It goes through where the songs came from, how they were written. But one of the things it did that I really liked was it did that. It said, oh, it was first played live here and last played live here. I really liked that idea and it, and it wasn't something I'd ever really looked at with the jam. Looking into it, it was interesting how some songs that you think are so strong, like Dreamtime, which I think opened pretty much every sound sound effects store and then never played it again as far as I can see. Whereas Scrape Away, even, you know, in mid-82 when, you know, Weller's was on his big soul boy kick, they're still playing something as angry as uh, and angular as um, Scrape Away. The thing for me as well that it, it shows you is because he continued to do that. So the um, the other day, um, Ian Munn, the Star Council guru, oh. shared a set list from 85 for the Star Council. They'd pretty much ditched everything from 83 and 84 for that tour. And well, is still doing that now. You know, it's not like he's <laughs> playing stuff from, or very rarely will play stuff from Wild Woods, Stanley Road, Heavy Soul, that first solo album, all that stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. he's constantly looking forward all the time, isn't he? And that seems to have yeah. started out right from that very early jam stage. Yeah, well, he's always, I mean, you know, I've never met him or anything, but it strikes me as the sort of person that who's always kind of in the now for the moment, which is great because, I, I mean, you can probably go and see, say, The Who or someone and you you know they're going to start with I Can't Explain and, you know, you get, they're going to play this and that. You know, I really like the fact that even if I went and saw Weller and he, he didn't play anything old, it wouldn't. I like the fact that he's still been doing it this long and had so much success with so many songs in the past and he's still, well, now I'm going to go out and play my new album. You know, even if I didn't particularly like his new album, for me, that's, a, you know, really admirable thing to do and you know true yeah. sort of mark for true eyes now we have to close this off with 1982's The Gift uh, 11 mm-hmm. songs 32 minutes Happy Together Ghosts which is Magic Mod's favourite song and, and many other jam oh. fans Precious Just Who Is The Five O'Clock Hero Trans Global Express Running On The Spot Circus which are Bruce Fox and song the Planner's Dream Goes Wrong, Carnation, Town Called Malice and The Gift. Boom, 11 songs, 32 minutes. We're in, we're out. We're done. Yeah. Um, I think, personally for me, one of my, just to skip back a bit, one of my favourite periods of the jam is 1981, when they didn't do an album. So I think that was a very, even though they only did two singles, developmentally for Weller, um, it seems like it was a very important year because he was off, started doing, launched his record labels, sponsored jamming, started writing, popping up writing essays, becoming more politically active and probably starting to grow away from the, the group, you know, the, the sort of the jam thing. And you kind of hear, you know, you've got Funeral Pyre follow, what, three, four months later by Absolute Beginners. And Tales from the Riverbank is my favourite jam song as well. So I've got to get 81 minutes. Fair points have pulled me up on that because you're right. Because it's yeah. a, it's a, you can hear that bridge in those few months between what's coming. I mean, Absolute Beginners is an absolute corker. Um, but again, Rick Buckler mm-hmm. really key on that song. Yeah, oh, totally. Um, that's one where you there's quite a few demos around. Um, so you can hear, really hear how that one and... 
what became Tales from the Riverbank developed from We've Only Started, which is on extras. At one point, a couple of other versions did pop up briefly on the internet and I managed to grab hold of um, where you can hear Weller, there's like a disco section in one of them and you can hear Weller trying to do, I'm assuming it's Weller doing the drums, trying to do like that kind of like disco vibe. And then it's interesting to hear how uh, Rick Buckler comes in and just by something as subtle as putting the kick drum or the bass drum in a slightly different place changes the whole outlook of the song. Yeah, and Tales from the Riverbank is just incredible. But only the B-side version for me. I don't, I'm not that keen on the re-recorded. But then you get onto the GIF. And yeah, I really, yeah, I love the GIF. Yeah, I love everything on the first side. I've always been a big fan of Transgobe Express. I seem to really like the ones that no one else does <laughs> or that aren't generally, you know, people's favourites. And again, I was really interested to find out what all the mumbling about is at the end. But um, he's having a go at Sting, isn't he? Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> at the end, yeah. There's Because um, if you listen, you can hear him talking. And it's a reference to Lisa's album, Ghost in the Machine. Is it called Ghost in the Machine, the album? Yeah. I think that came out while they were recording. Doing some sort of um, Mickey take of Sting. saying like, oh, yeah, I've had this idea for a riff, man. Yeah, we're all Ghost in the Machine, man. And then it's all, can't work out what he's saying. We can't change anything because we're so fucking weak or something like that. And it's some sort of like, you know, political anti-Sting rant. I did at one point. That's it. I went on Wikipedia to see if it was mentioned on the Ghost in the Machine page, the police album. It wasn't, so I put it there and uh, someone edit- edited it back out. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Sting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Checking up on himself. <laughs> um, running on the spots an incredible song as well also for me this period where and you document in the book as well because you you also feature you know who the who the other players are on these songs as well mm. and we should talk about two things i think actually one the fact that you know i know this is the paul weller fan podcast but the jam were paul weller bruce fox and rick buckler and it needed oh, the three of them to make that happen that music mm-hmm. came from the three of them and yeah bruce and rick added so much to that band didn't they oh totally like, like i've been saying all along it's um the three of them and there is this um kind of school of thought that it, you know they were just sort of you know it was all weller and they were just kind of bumbling sidekicks and stuff but there were anyone i think anyone who knows about music and how it's played particularly drums and bass would listen to what bruce and rick do and would say jesus they were good you know they was i could get into the technicalities of it but um it might it'd get quite boring if you're not a guitarist or a bassist but there are certain things that are going on that are you know really advanced you know um and they're not just good because they're advanced advanced and it works you know it gives the songs you know, a whole new dimension. So, and just the energy of their play, I think, you know, I mean, you only have to look at them playing live to see, you know, Bruce Fox and just always just going for it. Um, I love hearing from Rick Buckler about that. We talked about that. And, and he was saying almost in a way it became dangerous where every gig they try to kind of, you know, just put the pace up a little bit more, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So the songs mm-hmm. were, you know, and you watch those live, <laughs> that live footage and it's, my God, it's so quick. It's so fast. I think, I oh, think the, these albums we talked about, if they did these albums, which are 30 minutes long, we'd have been done in about 15 minutes live. <laughs> Yeah, you look at go back to like seventy-seven footage. There's the one where they're playing at the Electric Circus in Manchester, and it's ironically it's slowed down. They're playing, and well as singing or shouting that fast that you can't actually. He's just you like I don't think he's actually saying words. It's you know, but then even like the A2, there's the full gig Bingley Hall, isn't it, in Birmingham, which is where I'm from, and I believe my mum and dad were at that gig. Wow, certainly, pretty much anyone I. Met who was in Birmingham at that time was at that gig. Again, just the 
passion and the intensity, especially when like running on the spot, they're just like well as veins are like bulging out on his, you know, and he's lead, he's almost knocking the mic over because he's leaning into it so far. And that was a bad gig from what I can get, you know, because well was just in a mark through most of it. So I interrupted myself because I was saying what was really interesting is that you have the, the other players. So at this point in the gifts, yes, we're, we're we're having we're having sax and trumpet, and uh, mm. you start hearing little bits of the sound that's to come for the style council later. I think. Yeah, they're not actually sort of the end of the jam and the beginning style council aren't too dissimilar because you've got that that soul vibe coming in through the horns and the trumpets. But everyone was using them at that point, weren't they? Sort of every uh, I stumbled on a track by um, the members who seem to have still been going in eighty two, eighty three, and even they had like funk bass lines and horns. So yeah, they were kind of keeping up with the times, although they're going in a slightly different direction with it. You know? It was really interesting. It was interesting to read somewhere that um, Keith Thomas, one of the people who plays on the two-man horn section, he said they were encouraged to like bring ideas to the songs as well. But like when they were doing working on Precious, they didn't just walk in and they weren't handed, you know, sheet music and said, "Right, play this here." Play this. They were encouraged to be part of it. We should also talk about you know, there's still stuff to come uh, after this album. Yeah. Um, the bitterest pill I have ever had to swallow and beat surrender. Beat surrender, which also featured a whole bunch of stuff as a, as an EP covers mm. and all sorts. What I was really interested to learn, and I learned this from Ian Munn's book, Mystical's Dream, was that um, Weller had effectively he'd formed the Star Council by that point. What can make out? They'd started rehearsing pretty much soon as he got back from um, the tour where he decided he was going to break the jammer. I think by about August. September something so and they were working on Speak Like a Child Money Go Round possibly Head Stuff Happiness so he'd already written those songs and was already rehearsing them obviously Solid Bond in Your Heart given that the jam last single as an EP of covers I don't know if he was just sort of saving the good stuff <laughs> yeah but then at the same time I think um, I, I love the bitterest pill I love shopping as well and I think shopping given that you know there's again the sort of the school of thought oh Bruce and Rick you know they couldn't play a certain style like they played that kind of jazzy style really well. And so that pointed, you know, they possibly could have, had they wanted to, I think they could have gone off into another direction, not necessarily Star Council direction, but um, they weren't just, you know, dunderheaded rock musicians. You know, they were good and adaptable. I still think Weller did the right thing, and I'm really glad they've never got back together. Post the jam, you adore the Style Council. That's a huge thing for you yeah. too. Oh, true. Yeah. Uh, possibly, as I've got older, since writing the book, uh, maybe I got a bit jammed out by um, I really came to appreciate the Style Council it, just in a different way. I don't think you can quantify it in terms of less or more. Personally, for me, if I had to pick a key Weller period, it would be probably 81 to 85, maybe. I think that's uh, musically and stylistically and politically and everything. I think for me, that's just my favourite period of him or his work um, to date. You know, who knows what could come. But um, yeah, I just think he looks dressed amazing was you know referencing amazing records and things like you know the our favorite shop cover i've spent god knows how long you know squinting at trying to read the books and listen to the albums and whatnot um i'm one of those people i love confessions of a pop group as well you know I'm, i really like weller when he's i particularly like weller when he's kicking against expectations do you know what i mean like when he does like free jazz EPs. that in another room ep did i love yeah. that one 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 off 22 dreams you know <laughs> I'm into all that stuff. I got called out on the podcast by some of the some of the listeners who were taking the piss about the fact that I congratulated Mick Talbot on Confessions <laughs> 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, it's um, first side, you know, it's a very deep sea change in the guard, the little um, piano bits. One of the things I, so I taught myself to play piano and one of the first things I taught myself to play was uh, The Flew Down From The Elephant, that one. 
Little Boy in a Castle to those two bits I taught myself to play them not very well but um, side one of Confessions is astounding um, I've tried and tried with The Cost of Loving I just can't do it I just something doesn't something doesn't click for me with it I have to ask you about Weller's Jukebox because you talked about you know being a bit of a geek and kind of you know really being mm. obsessive about the creation of this book and stuff talk to me about this we see lots of pictures of Black Barn Studio we see yeah. this amazing jukebox of Black Barn Studio which has Stanley Road artwork on it so it's obviously existed yeah. for, for what, th- nearly 30 years right? every time you see pictures of it you try to kind of zoom in and see what's on the actual mm-hmm. jukebox right to the point that you've now created a playlist on Spotify yeah. and, you've, and you've worked out a shitload of the songs oh no I know all of them now um, <laughs> I've, because I've, I've got I've got inside connections I'm telling you I mean it could have changed now but what happened was I've, I did spend years squinting trying to work them out so I haven't ruined my eyes I don't know do you remember that Mojo Collections thing you did yeah about 20 yeah. years ago with the record collection I've spent a long I've had my mum's magnifying glass used for knitting <laughs> and I actually saw once I actually saw I went to Lawrence Watson is the photographer who took that in it, and he had this random exhibition this is about 15 years ago he had a random exhibition on an estate on the edge of a housing estate in Birmingham and I went along and it had that picture of Weller sat in front of his record collection like huge filled wall and you could see what was written on every spine but this was before camera phones and I didn't know it was going to be there so I didn't have a pen and paper I was like like, so I was just like looking trying to remember sort of move out in there oh something like the Brandenburg concertos were in there as well something really you know really diverse stuff but back to the jukebox um, I'd worked some of them out and then I'd mentioned it to a friend of mine who works for um, actually I don't know if I'll get him stuck for being some sort of mole but uh, no I'll be alright there's a guy who I know who does camera for Lee Cogswell the guy who's done all the you know the recent Weller films a mate of mine is one of his camera guys. And he says, oh, I'm down there doing some filming next week. I'll take some photos of it for you. Took photos of everything that was on there. So I got the whole lot, you know. Wow. Uh, I wish I'd have known that before I started squinting. But, uh, <laughs> so the Spotify playlist, the complete Paul Weller jukebox, is actually that, the Paul Weller jukebox? It's genuinely the complete Paul Weller jukebox. Wow, that is uh, amazing. I didn't unless know he's, I mean, he might have wanted changed. There's, I guess stuff gets taken out. One. Yeah, Twisted Wheel when I got taken out and something else. But I was really surprised to see Embarrassment by Madness on there um, because you don't really hear Weller ever talk about, in the early 80s, one thing he was, um, when he'd be raving about bands he was listening to at the time in an interview in 1980 or 1981, um, you know, he was raving about bands like Madness, The Beat, um, Slits, people like that. But then, because he spent so long totally disregarding that period and run away from it you never hear him say oh um, he'd always say oh that's just other music from that period just hasn't dated well so it's interesting to see that he still rates or he's got a tune from that period on his jukebox you know? Pop Art Poems is a fabulous book at the minute it's only a paperback copy and bless you for yeah. sending it me um, when are you going to yeah. get it on Kindle? As soon as I'm writing my second novel at the moment and I'm meant to be doing that I really do need to just go through it I've got all the ISBN number and everything I really just need to go through and edit it because there's a few typos in there because I rush edited it which is a long story but um, yeah you can only get the paperback if you keep an eye on eBay and yeah. someone's flogging this. Some people try and flog it for silly money. And the title of the book is really important as well because we haven't really touched on the li- the, the words and the lyrics of Paul and the Jam, but no. um, but they had such such importance. Yeah, well, they're I mean, they're my as a writer myself. A lot of it that was my kind of way in. And one of the things I think is I mean, it certainly sets them apart from a lot of other bands. The lyrics are so good and still are. 
And yet it was, I think originally, if it hadn't have been used, I'd have called it Sounds from the Street because that's the, the obvious title. Pop-Up Poems was, I was just, to be honest, I was just casting around for a song title that would work as book title. But then once you hit on Pop-Up Poems, it's like, well, that's, that is what the songs are. You know, when you read, you can read the best of them. If you read the lyrics to Pretty Green, you know, it's a pop-up poem. And pop-up poem is another of those unusual songs that I'm a big fan of that other people go, what the bloody hell's this stick, <laughs> stick going underground on, would you? you know? <laughs> I'm sure this was so lovely. I have two final questions for you, right? You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be oh. the jam, the style council or solo. What are you going to go with? I've got to go with Tales from the Riverbank, I think, because that would be one of my desert island bits anyway. But it has to be the absolute beginner's B-side version, not the one with the horns. That's to okay. do the, you know, the trippy fade-up version on those magical records I can just listen to over and over and over again. And again, the I mean, we talked about the albums, but the the, the, you know, the singles, the B-sides, songs like Butterfly Collect, you mentioned shopping, um, you know, Liza Radley, The Great Depression. Oh, there's so Liza much, Radley, yeah. Oh, there's so much that's stuff another, hidden away as well. Yeah, that's another, and Liza Radley's another big favourite of mine. But I've got, you know, I've got soft spots for B-sides. Like Aunties and Uncles, I think, is... Uh, underrated in the canon the live version of Back in My Arms again I'm one of those people you know I'll happily blast out Carnaby Street you know and have a good uh, <laughs> it's just it's that thing I don't even know if I like it anyway it's just it's just there it's just such a part of my life it's like actually I do like it you know it's just one of those things occasionally it's like actually no so do you, this, it doesn't matter who wrote this or whether it's cool or not you know or whether the lyrics to Carnaby Street are pretty atrocious you know but uh, just a great one to put around blast out you know but then yeah. you've got other things with de- you know real depth like the butterfly collector you said seesaw's an odd one no one ever talks about seesaw the B-side of eating rifles final question purpose of this podcast um, is I mean it's right. to talk to lovely people like yourself and mm. really is to get that interview with Paul Weller that I never managed right. in my radio career if and when it happens yeah. what should I ask him I'd, I think I'd just ask him to recommend me some good music you know I'd say I'd, I'd want to know because I met I did meet Mick I've met pretty much everyone you can meet around him without meeting him um, and I don't know if I'd want to to be honest but, um, but you know just you don't want your you know Casey was in a bad mood and you come away with a bad impression but I met Mick Talbot at a um, festival I was playing at and he, he turned up backstage and managed to become unstarstruck enough to ask him to recommend a really great jazz album you know so I'd, I'd end up I'd end up just asking someone like that so yeah I'd just want to know what he's listening to he did a little bit on radio too but I've always thought Weller would make a, a great radio DJ oh yeah he did that I always I do love when he does um, curates you know a playlist or something but those yeah those vinyl classic things were really yeah. interesting I remember listening to them taping them and there was that one um, All Back to Mind that was meant to be on the telly but it, it got scrapped and never broadcast but it ended up being on radio which he did in about 98 I think where it was um, just went around his house and was interviewing while he was playing records and they were obviously a high or high and drunk I think <laughs> uh, but he was just chatting about music and playing amazing tunes but it was interesting because he was playing like 80s soul stuff you know which at the time was about as unpassionate as it could get oh you know what else I'd ask him actually but I'd probably ask him what his like musical guilty pleasure is he's got to like some really bizarre uncool mid 80s Thing, surely you know what I mean I was thinking about this the other day that there must be some ma- big mainstream songs that he likes because everything seems really eclectic that he recommends and you're like you know, it's a bit left field or you're kind of like oh I've not heard this before there must be I just want to hear him go yeah I love this album by Phil Collins <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah. <laughs> um, seriously yeah. it's one of my favourites you know get, hear something like that yeah. from him <laughs> see there was a thing now you mentioned that years ago I think it was Channel 4 we're doing one of those best albums ever programmes and the like the trailer for it um, that was being shown had um, people being interviewed for it just saying you know 
was Johnny Margot now the Queen is dead. And Weller popped up and he went, Abba's arrival. Now, I'm, I'm assuming he was taking the piss, but you, you never know. But it would, I wouldn't put it past him. So he turned up, there's a clip of him, he turned up on a radio show uh, praising Gilbert O'Sullivan, saying that Alone Again Naturally was one of his all-time favourite songs. So, you know. Sean, thank you so much for your time. This was an absolute blast. Well done thank on the book, Dad. man. And, um, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Dad. It's been a pleasure. That was great. My thanks once again to Sean Hand. Do try to track down his book on eBay, and I'll let you know when that Kindle version arrives in the future. And check out my show notes for links to that Weller jukebox too, and ways to connect with Sean. Next up, a real delight to chat with a guest who was on my list from the very beginning, not least because I'm a huge fan of her fabulous work. Singer-songwriter Sam Brown joins me on the podcast. We dive into her career and hear about links to Paul through live music and the Studio 150 album that features Sam as well. Make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. It really does help us to find new listeners. And please do share on your social media channels. You can also buy me a coffee and find information about my guests in the show notes for this podcast. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.